Welcome to the Aquarimax Audio Show with Russ and Kelly. We provide information on all kinds of aquarium-related topics. This is episode 318, recorded to November 28, 2016. I almost didn't get that out of my mouth. Okay, <laughs> this is an interview today with Nick Shade. So welcome, Nick. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Howdy. How are you guys today? Right. We're doing fairly well. We've had kind of a crazy day with um, a snowstorm and everything hitting and causing my commute to last more than three hours. But other than that, we're doing well. I'm glad to hear that and glad that all our schedules are lined up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We've been looking forward to this interview for some time. So um, we'd like to start out with just a little introduction. So... Would you tell us how you first became interested in the hobby, in keeping aquariums? Well, um, as simply as it can be, uh, my wife and I, before we were married, we planned a wedding. And as uh, most plans for weddings go, um, we needed centerpieces for our uh, reception. And what we thought would be a great idea would be fish in vases and um, what ended up turning into a difficult to slightly easier procedure ended up being that we chose a uh, two female betas in each vase at each table and we thought that we would have everybody who attended fight over the vases at each table for who got to take them home and <laughs> so with exactly with 48 female betas, I think, it might have been 24 now that I think about it, 24 female betas, uh, no one took a single beta home, and oh. we had to have a, uh, a home for them at that point, um, and I knew nothing about fish keeping, my wife knew less than the nothing I knew, and I bought a book on beta keeping, um, I went on Craigslist and bought a 28-gallon aquarium, I mean, thankfully, they were all female betas, so they would cohabitate together. Um, but in that whole process, I learned a crash course method for the nitrogen cycle and water yeah. changes. And the resentment of my wife every day I came home changing the water, just trying to keep them alive um, until finally, after about three months of just learning everything, it turned out that they had some sort of a parasitic worm that I had to treat with a very aggressive uh, deworming, I believe it was an erythromycin or a derivative, um, which knocked out just about every remaining uh, beta. And from then forward, after having learned everything crash course method, uh, I just started to keep different variations and then um, uh, mostly just fresh water. And then up until about last year, uh, I decided I finally wanted to do a saltwater tank and um, last year I decided to take a, a big dive uh, in again around January. And I started a shrimp tank in freshwater um, with planted and then a, um, a saltwater tank in June. And um, now, you know, it's, it's a hobby that never goes away, but now it's much more full-time. Okay. Cool. So does your wife still help you keep the fish or... Just not oh, she really. does from time to time. Yeah, she usually comes up, sees what new creature I have, um, tells me which ones that she likes, and uh, 
just recently she's asking that I, I, I keep all of my fish tanks in my cave, uh, my man cave, and uh, <laughs> now she's asking for me to bring them all downstairs into the living room, um, which isn't an easy task, but um, just this past Saturday I picked up a 60-gallon cube to build a reef for downstairs, which will be show-worthy. Oh, nice. Yeah, that sounds like a really cool project. So, okay, so tell us, what is it about the aquarium hobby that, that really attracts you to it And after your crash course, and, you know, why did you keep going in it? What, what was it that you loved about it? You know, um, I have to say it's some sort of persistence as not wanting to accept failure. Um, as I was younger, there, there were a lot of hobbies that I picked up, uh, and a, a handful which I did stick with. Um, I uh, used to be a professional musician, and I still do hobby as a musician. And that's one of those things that you cannot just pick up and drop, pick up and drop as a musician. But uh, fish keeping is the same way. Aquarium hobby, um, it's a, a hobby of patience. Nothing happens quickly in a good way. Everything um, that happens quickly in the aquarium hobby uh, usually leads to failure if you do it too quick. <laughs> True. And, um, you know, that patience is uh, sort of um, a really nice alternative to watching the grass grow. Um, and it's kind of a little bit more of a reward uh, as far as for seeing things actually proliferate, like uh, fish breeding or shrimp breeding, um, and then especially harder to keep fish when they actually survive, like the saltwater uh, mandarin gobies uh, or freshwater um, uh, Neocaridina shrimp. Right. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah that's, that's always been something that I have enjoyed about the hobby is uh, watching something reproduce or, or having a challenging species just succeed. So I totally get that. I'm right there with you. Mm -hmm. So um, you've given us some hints about the next question, um, some of your areas of interest with the hobbies, within the hobby. So we know that you... Uh, are both into fresh and salt water, which is, um, you know, there are a lot of hobbyists who are either one or the other, and you have one salty wet foot and one freshwater wet foot, so to speak, <laughs> straddling the two different facets of the hobby. So um, tell us a little bit more about the, um, the mandarin gobies. I know you, you and I corresponded a bit by email about those. Can you tell us a little bit more about their setup and, and how, um, and yeah, make sure, sure. Their nickname too. Their nickname that your wife gave them because that's cool. Well, as far as for mandarin gobies, um, they're not actually a goby, uh, as I'm sure you know, um, but they have sort of a look that is similar to most in the goby uh, genus, um, and they're actually a dragonet, uh, which is their own separate species. They're shared with the lawnmower blennies. Um, scooter blennies and other similar fish and specifically the mandarin goby is just a really psychedelic looking fish um, and it, it is a nickname for it the psychedelic goby is another name for it uh, they have a very very difficult diet for the average fish keeper to uh, facilitate for them they eat almost only live foods 
Um, and one of those foods that is more easily harvestable is the marine copepod or amphipod, which are small, tiny crustaceans, which are detritivores, which eat, you know, uh, detritus off of the ground. They eat small algaes. Um, anything that's sort of phytoplankton is what the marine copepods eat. And in turn, the dragonets eat them like crazy. They eat uh, several, probably several hundred in a single day. And a, a reef tank um, can hold as many as they need uh, in order to handle all that detritus. Um, but what will happen is because these mandarin gobies uh, just eat them up, it is necessary uh, as a hobby keeper of them um, to either supplement the marine copepods by buying them at the uh, you know local fish store um, or to go ahead and... Um, harvest them themselves or have a very, very intricate refugium in a sump. Um, now, my mandarin gobies, uh, they are the psychedelic uh, goby, and um, my wife, when she first saw them, um, she pretty much summarized exactly how they look. They look like underwater fairies. They have very fast-moving wing-like, uh, I believe they're caudal fins, um, and they just constantly move like a hummingbird's wings. And they also sort of stand on end in the aquarium so that their tail hangs low. And if you've ever seen any sort of movie or book or anything like that that depicts fairies, these are a perfect call-in of a typical blue fairy. So both of these two gals that I have, uh, rather I should say guy and gal fairies uh, of the sea, um, my wife, naturally, the first thing she said was, oh, they're blue fairies. Let's have them downstairs. Um, exactly. So um, my wife is a big fan of fairies, and this was a big hit. This is, uh, these two are the ones that uh, had my wife decide that she wanted to have one of the tanks downstairs. That's so, very cool. I am a gigantic fairy fan as well. Oh, they're great. So. You should get some gobies, some mandarin gobies. That would be fun. And actually, I really like the mandarins. Yep. When we were first married, we went to a Japanese restaurant that had an we aquarium. We Maybe we were just dating. Yeah. They had a, an aquarium uh, in the Japanese restaurant with uh, one of the fish, and um, she asked me what it was, and I think I said, I think those are the ones they call psychedelic fish. Yeah. And, uh, and, she, yeah. and it turned out I was right, because I, I didn't know much about uh, marine fish at the time, but I knew enough that I knew the, that that was one of the nicknames they had. I didn't know much else about them at the time, but uh, anyway, she was pretty impressed by it. So whenever we see them at the fish, I mean, if you go looking for just about any sort of press material um, regarding the aquarium hobby, especially saltwater hobby, almost always on the cover of just about anything, you will always see a mandarin goby, psychedelic goby. Uh, it's just the most, um, it's the poster child for the, for the saltwater aquarium. Yeah, they're very striking. They are indeed. And uh, now you mentioned to me that you have something set up in order to feed your, um, your mandarin fish. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, the, um, what I do is a bucket method um, culturing which is as simple as you can go. Um, I just get a five-gallon paint bucket from the hardware store. I set up a, uh, an air stone going about three to five bubbles a second. Um, and then I also harvest phytoplankton, marine phytoplankton, um, in 
order to feed the marine copepods that I culture in the five-gallon buckets because these mandarin gobies clear out a whole tank in just a manner of days, potentially, um, I do have to completely supplement their diet with new copepods as often as possible. So I keep two uh, cultures going at a time. Uh, don't ask me how many copepods I have at a moment. I could not count that high. Um, <laughs> there are so many in each bucket. Um, and then uh, with water changes, I just add um, about half of each culture that I'm on for that particular uh, month, and then um, just go ahead and supplement from there, and I just keep adding phytoplankton to these buckets, keep the air stone going, make sure that the water's not too clear but not too dirty. Um, the kind of water they like is, since they're detritivores, they do sort of eat just about anything, um, and uh, just keep them alive so I can keep these gobies alive. Uh, the gobies live in a, in a nano tank, which is only about 28 gallons, so there is a limited amount of copepods that can um, live in this tank at any given time. A uh, 28-gallon tank is usually considered the smallest that these gobies can live in, and I do have two, so they knock out the population pretty quickly. Um, but they're both fat, they're both happy, they're both swimming right in front of me and just asking for food, probably. But um, the... Uh, once they get into the 60-gallon downstairs, I can probably um, spend more time putting more um, into the refugium so that the copepods there will will uh, require less harvesting and culturing on my own. Yeah, so it's less labor-intensive because you have all that uh, space to work with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Are you going to put a pod pile in your refugium? That will be the plan. Um, I do use uh, a couple of different um, macroalgaes, uh, in other words, seaweeds. Um, when you hear people talk about macroalgaes, that's essentially what they're talking about is seaweed. Um, seaweed is essentially an algae itself, macroalgae, a large algae, and uh, copepods can eat all sorts of different organisms on the macroalgae. Um, I have, in my display tank, I do have uh, mermaid's fan, as well as uh, one of the red variations of macroalgae, which sort of has a, uh, a almost a coral-like movement and quality to it. And then in the back refugium of this nano tank, I do also keep uh, chetomorph um, uh, macroalgae as well, and that's the one that is uh, the most popular alternative to uh, Cowalerpa, which. Cowalerpa is not a permitted plant to have in California where I live, but Chetomorph um, macroalgae is okay. That's what I keep. It's easy to trim. It's easy to keep up. It's easy to keep those copepods in there. And when I do have that 60-gallon tank with the refugium, it'll be Chetomorph and the mermaid's fan and the red macroalgae in the display tank as well. Yeah, I remember uh, I have dabbled in the saltwater side of the hobby. I haven't done it in recent years, but... Uh uh, a few years ago, I probably we probably did it for about five, five or six total years, and I may eventually do it again. We hope to, but uh, we had uh, in our Pico Reef, I guess you'd call it, we had some um, Chetomorpha and uh, some Grape Calerpa, and that Grape Calerpa was so invasive and crazy hard to deal with. You just leave a tiny little piece anywhere, and it would sprout back up. But the Chetomorpha was much. Uh, much more easily dealt with and controlled. Yeah, it's um, 
the good thing about I, I call it Cheeto. I hear people call it Cheeto, Cheeto, Cato, Catomorpha. It's probably is the correct way to pronounce it, Catomorpha. Um, it is an easy to trim um, macroalgae. You can literally just pull whatever um, harvesting rod. What I do is I put it on the back of that polystyrene egg crate. If you ever look up at the uh, at fluorescent fixtures inside of like a warehouse, you've got that checkerboard style. Um, basically egg crate is what it looks like and that's what they call it. Uh, you can just right. sort of weave it between those. You can chop up a couple pieces of that that you'd get um, in that egg crate style from the hardware store. You chop up a couple pieces like a 4x4 four four, uh, grid. You just weave that uh, catomorpha into it and then you just drop it in the back of your refugium so that, that way you can easily pull it out all at once and then just trim off enough so that uh, it's not overgrowing the refugium. Um, and that's, that's the easiest way I've found to harvest it quickly. Um, I hope I don't ever have that, uh, that grape colerpa, the, inva the invasive uh, macroalgae, but I mean, it can hopscotch onto all sorts of different frags and you can have it unknowingly in your tank in a matter of days. Yeah, I think I ended up, mine, it came along with the ketomorph and there's just a tiny little um, fragment of it and that was enough. <laughs> Took me a long time to get rid of it. Well, um, I think we could probably do a whole episode on um, some of the uh, reef tank things you're doing, but uh, one thing we wanted to make sure to spend some time on was the uh, your gallon, your three-gallon jar setups that uh, you put together. Um, uh, just so everyone listening knows, you sent me some pictures of them. We had, uh, we've had some conversations uh, via email about them, and I was very intrigued by the whole idea and I wanted you to kind of talk us through what you created because it's a very cool idea. Sure, that was kind of a fun sidebar that we delved into. Um, as far as things go, uh, I'll give you a little background for that. Um, I'm a member of an organization for planted tanks uh, in Southern California called Southern California Aquascapers. Um, its full name is uh, Southern California Aquatic Plant Enthusiasts. And um, that organization at scapeclub.org, S-C-A-P-E-C-L-U-B dot O-R-G, uh, is a place for Southern California um, planted freshwater tank enthusiasts to congregate, go to monthly meetings, acquire um, all sorts of different aquatic plants at a very, very reduced price, and learn about how to set up CO2 systems, um, various improvised lightings, uh, low-tech systems, as well as there are very many uh, ADA or uh, a mono um, enthusiast style planted tank um, hobbyists associated with the organization through there. So uh, long story short from there, um, there is a group that sponsors the club called uh, boostplant.com, B-U-C-E-P-L-A-N-T.com, um, and they are a major importer of Bucephalandra uh, plants, which are out of uh, mostly Indonesia, and um, on their featured uh, contributions to our forum, they like to show a lot of um, different sorts of nano and picoscapes. One of them they showed with a jar themselves 
which was made out of an IKEA jar. Uh, I saw that one. It's one of the featured tanks that's on the scapeclub.org website. And it actually sort of inspired me to try a version of my own. They had a dry setup um, similar to a Wabakusa, which is a variation of a quadded plant um, uh, scapes. And um, it's sort of a version uh, that is just planting into a small Pico aquarium jar uh, and then just letting it go and, and grow rampant. Um, however, in the example they did with the IKEA jar, they didn't have any filtration, so in turn they didn't add any water. Um, I decided since I do a lot of um, sort of maintenance and uh, my own do-it-yourself projects all the time, and I've drilled my own tanks, I went ahead and decided to find a jar that seemed strong enough, drilled it myself, didn't cause it to shatter, and went ahead and added my own um, HMF filter or Hamburg Matten filter to it, uh, which was a very simple concept of just an aquarium pump and a bit of filter floss inside of a Sterilite container, a small, small little Tupperware style container. Um, and then that allowed water just to flow through the poly filter, the, uh, the floss filter, um, which is a small, tiny version of a Hamburg Mountain filter, which is a, a very European common style uh, to, way to filter out breeding tanks and planted uh, display tanks and frag tanks and very similar things uh, without having an, a large canister system. Everything can be in one single tank with one enclosed filter. So this, by drilling the jar and putting in the HMF filter inside of it uh, and then building around that filter uh, a bit of substrate and uh, mostly volcanic substrate and then on top of that some uh, driftwood and plants everything gives an appearance as though there is no filter in there no wires in there and it's just a fully functioning scape in a small three gallon container um, and that's what I pulled off and uh, my wife really loves it. She wanted me to start making them for everybody. Um, so I've lost track of who all I've given them to. Uh, but we use them as alternatives in our house to nightlights. They, they work great on tables. Uh, they great, work great on, uh, at the end of the sofa. Uh, and just about anywhere that a nightlight would be. It's cool little scapes that can be planted um, just wabi-kusa style. Um, scapes in a small little three-gallon jar. Very cool. They are very cool. I love the the pictures too. So the the filter, and we'll put the the pictures up on this episode's page so you can check them out. Um, Nick was kind enough to send several in various stages of creation development, so um, you can check those out uh, while you're listening or after you listen or whatever. Um, so the the filter itself. Now, I'm familiar with the basic uh, concept of a Hamburg mountain filter where you basically partition off a section of the tank with uh, a permeable foam, like an open-cell foam. So you're doing this on a very much smaller scale within an enclosed box, right? Hello, Aquarimaxers. For technical reasons, we're going to have you listen to the rest of this interview as episode 318B. We'll pick up right where this episode leaves off. 